Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Today we have Beatrice Perez, Senior Vice President and Chief Communications, Sustainability, and Strategic Partnerships Officer for the Coca-Cola Company. B is responsible for managing Coke's commitments to ESG as well as global external and internal communications, digital media strategy, and financial slash leadership communications. B has also been named to various top leaders lists, including the American Advertising Hall of Fame, the Sports Business Journal's Hall of Fame, and PR Week's Hall of Fame. And she's also been recognized as one of the 25 most powerful Latinas by CNN and as a conservation trailblazer by the Trust for Public Land. In this conversation, we discuss B's recent experience at Davos, her 25-plus year history at Coca-Cola, the importance of leadership that creates space for growth, and Coke's multi-pronged approach to sustainability. Please enjoy this conversation with B Perez. Good afternoon, B. Thank you for joining us here today. Thank you, Paul, for having me. Appreciate it. We're very excited to speak with you. Now, I'm sure everybody listening knows this company that you work for. Um, for those who aren't familiar with the company I work for, this is Paul Dyer. I'm the CEO at Lippy Taylor. Uh, Lippy Taylor is a digital communications agency that was named the most outstanding mid-sized PR firm by PR Week in both 2021 and 2022. Uh, we specialize in helping brands revitalize their relevance amid the changing media landscape and evolving audience demographics. Um, so how about we go ahead and talk about you and this company you work for called Coca-Cola B. Um, you've just returned from Davos. Maybe we should start there. What, what did you hear? What did you see? What was interesting over, uh, in Switzerland? Well, first of all, the snow was back and so was everybody else. So, so what I'd say is, um, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to go over the last 10 years to Davos a couple different times. And I think maybe you probably read, you know, around the, you know, 2019, 2020, that people were speculating Davos is, you know, dying off. I think there was a headline that said something to that effect. And so, you know, I think it was the question during the pandemic, will Davos really become what it was once again? Or will it be worse? Will it shut down? Or will it be better? I actually think it was better. So I, I will say this, that this Davos in particular, especially with the theme of a fragmented world, resonated, I think, with a lot of the people who were there. You had CEOs, government leaders, whether ministers, heads of states, you had a lot of different professionals that were broadened out in different areas of companies. So sustainability officers to chief communications officers, lots of NGOs. And what I saw is that there was a lot more of the side events that had ever taken place in the past from when I had attended. And they were open to broader communities. In addition to that, the WEF program, if you, and so there's a whole thing around what bad you have when you go to WEF. We're a strategic partner and we have been for many years. So we have access to several of the different events inside the convention center. And what I found is that there was a lot more discussion in terms of how sustainability and business work together. And we were a part of one of those discussions where WEF brought together the chief sustainability officers. 
that was an incredible conversation. But some of the themes that you would expect, everyone's come back from Davos and has written their blog or their post. I'm sure you've read them all, right? I'm sure you might've even written one yourself. But, you know, the economy was top of mind. It was the views of, you know, is there going to be a recession or not? There was a lot of debate on both sides. How is sustainability playing a role, meaning environment and climate top of mind? I'd also say that there was a lot of discussion in terms of new ways of working and how we think about the new ways for the next generations, but also for the five generations that are today in the workforce. And what did we learn from the pandemic? What do we all want to keep? And what are the things we'd like to change? And then AI. So for me, AI was everywhere. You couldn't hide from it. And it, I was really interested in AI as a topic because, and this goes back to, I, I'm a mom, I have kids. My 21-year-old son during the holiday vacation took me on ChatGPT and made me actually sign up and test it. And so we had fun with it. We did a press release of, I appointed a new fake chairman and CEO to see what that would actually tell me. I had to program it, right? So I had to say the name of the person, the date they would start, a little bit of their skills. It created an amazing press release. I'm not sure I want to tell my team here, but it was actually high quality work. <laughs> and then on the other side, my son said, okay, but it's not perfect. Let's ask it who's in charge of Coke today or who are the leaders. And when I asked that, it gave me a combination of Butler leadership, former leaders. It even went down almost 20 years in the past. So it was a great conversation to have with my 21-year-old who's in university today and studying business and sustainability and, and economics around how can AI support and get rid of the mundane work that people don't really want to do in the future, but then how could it actually still, you know, where is it today in maturity? Where does it still require human intelligence and someone to have the judgment that it requires to make sure that what you're actually using it for is appropriate and that the content and the data within it. So I got pretty excited because I have to admit I'm a novice in that space. I, I don't know enough you know, other than playing around with the technology. But there were a lot of sessions in Davos that I signed up for to understand how can we think about using AI in the future. So I have to ask, do you think, you know, from, from talking with your son and your experience just testing it out, um, do you think this is the kind of thing they're actually starting to teach in schools today? Or is it more just kind of a novelty? I think it's both depending on where you are. If you're in computer science or teaching it for sure, I think in the business environment, they're starting to test it and try it in different concepts in the classroom. And that's where my son learned about it. But what I found, and, and, um, and I know you know the word regenerative AI, I did not, not until I went to Davos. And I sat there in a session. It was a lunch session. And it's interesting because I actually had another session right afterwards. And I thought, oh, I can only attend a little bit of the session then I'm going to have to run out. I was glued to my seat. I didn't want to leave. And there are some brilliant individuals in the room talking about AI and how to think about equity across AI, how to use it for supply chains, how to think about it in terms of your employee base and how to make their lives easier. And the conversation went into so many different directions. And I thought, you know what? I was hearing things beyond chat GPT. So I'd heard that at home right from my son, but then I heard about Dolly and I heard about all these other tools and systems. And um, there's you know, incredibly intelligent people who were there and who were talking about in terms of this is going to be a tool that we all use in the future. And so it's important no matter what generation we're in to understand what it can do, but also all the unintended consequences and how to mitigate those at the same time. You know, it's interesting. There's um, an engineer I've worked with for many, many years, software engineer. And um, we had experimented years ago with 
an AI that can look at news articles and pull out the most central line in that news article. And we were trying to make this do media monitoring. It wasn't good enough to do media monitoring, right? right. Now you're getting to where the new tools can. And the conversation we just had was shifting about how AI used to make humans better and more efficient. And that in the future, it's going to be the opposite. The human's job is going to make the AI better, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about that and you, you fast forward, we've got a lot of people listening to this that are earlier in their careers, you know, maybe not quite as young as your son, but, you know, in between, you know, like yes, you yes. sitting in the top job and your son uh, just, you know, trying to find his way out to the world. Um, you know, what are some of the, the future skills, if you will? What are the things that maybe you would recommend they sharpen up on? Because it's not going to be AI for everybody, right? What are the things that you think are maybe still always going to be valuable skills? Yeah, so so let me start with uh, what I think is still valuable and then some of the places I think we need to continue to explore. And they're tied together in a certain way. So I think no matter what role you're in, you have to be an effective communicator. You have to know how to read, how to write, how to communicate a perspective, a point of view, because at the end of the day, you know, whether you're in a company or if you're at an NGO somewhere or in the government, you have to convey an idea and your principles and thoughts and how to, you know, execute a plan or how to measure success or tell a story. So communication is critical. Clearly, I'm, I can practice brevity. I know I still have to work on my own communication as we all can. And so that's, that's for me, number one. But number two, it's also the use of data. So, and I think that's evolved, but I think it's still important today. How we make decisions really matters. And so relying on data with a combination of experience, I believe is still going to be critical and in tapping into critical thinking skills that we learn through our academic careers and in real life situations. So I think those are some of the, the tried and true. I'd also say relationships are always gonna be important. So we still need people to program the computers. They're writing the code. I know that ChatGPT and AI is going to write some codes in the future, but at the end of the day, you still need the human being to take a look at that code, back to your point. So I'd say that relationships still matter because this world is so interconnected. Even if the theme in Davos was around fragmentation, we're still connected. Even if we're fragmented and operating in our own worlds at times, our actions have consequences to other places, even if it's not so obvious in the short term. And so how we make sure we're talking to people who are not like us, we're listening, we're learning, we're exploring different concepts, I think that's going to always remain. And, and personally, I found that to be very valuable in my career. The things that are new, it's, it is going to be the technology. It's how to use new tools, what has improved over the time in terms of ease of access. How do you actually leverage the system of tools to help drive your message to break through the clutter? Because there's so much clutter in today's world. And I think we all know the history of it. it used to be simpler when we had three channels and not, you know, there wasn't a lot now there's a theme for everything, a channel for everything, a video for everything. And so how do we actually have the skills to decipher what's important in the work that we do today and what's important to the future and still learn? So learning is also for me, that's a tried and true thing that is in my head. So how do we learn the new technologies? How do we learn to deploy them? How do we learn to you know, maybe take some additional risk in our lives and test these things because, you know, 
I, I tend to think that when you lean into risk and, and fear, it can actually have some great positive benefits. Have to be educated, have to use the facts and the data and your experience around you. But at the same time, that's where I think that this generation, it's, uh, it's a generation that's full of purpose. I think you know that as well. And that's what the data shows. This generation, this future generation cares. They really care. They care about each other. They care about the planet in which they share. And they care about, you know, the, the society that's being created around them and, and how they can play a part in that. And I think that it's going to be important for this generation to lean in to understand the data and the facts around that as well and what role they can play. So there you go. So now now I've just proven to you I need to practice brevity. <laughs> a lot, there's a lot in there that I'm trying to even pick, you know, all the different directions we can go now. I mean, first of all, I just love the emphasis on leaning into fear. Um, you know, one of the things we talk about here is that growth and comfort are actually at odds with one another, mm -hmm. right? And that it's okay to be a little bit afraid and try something out. And there's, that's where the learning comes from. But you, you use a couple of words that I think are really important. Um, you said you talked about consequences. Mm -hmm. um, and you also talked about sort of the intersectionality of, you know, everything in the world. Um, so at Davos, you know, you mentioned there were chief sustainability officers there um, for a lot of companies that are not at the scale of a Coca-Cola. The chief sustainability officer is the chief communications officer, right? Um, and certainly those two things are, are in, incredibly intertwined today. So just curious from your position of being really specialized and in these conversations, how would you describe that? intertwining of those two things? What is the role of communications when it comes to sustainability versus having a dedicated chief sustainability officer or sort of line of business there? Well, it's interesting because I realized in those audiences that I've started in the reverse way as most of my peers who were sitting there. So a lot of my peers are chief communications officers who ended up with the additional responsibility of sustainability and they have teams who are their experts. I started out as the chief sustainability officer who then ultimately was asked to take on communications. Now, if you go back in my history, I was our chief marketing officer for the North America division of Coke. So I had marketing and consumer within my domain. So I had that skill set. But this was really different. So when I was asked to take on sustainability, and back then it was Mutar Kent, the current chairman and CEO, who asked me to do this, I asked him why. And he said, well, sustainability is going to be core to the growth of our company in the future. And we have to be mindful of how do we shift from just mitigating risk to driving growth. And I want someone to put the discipline in as a business. And so you'll have plenty of experts who already work in the business. We had water experts, packaging experts. And he said, what I want you to do is build a strategic framework and the plan to help drive this in terms of a business imperative. So I moved out of my other role 100% into sustainability back in 2011, and he gave me the blessing of a year to learn, really six months. He said a year, but it was six months. And so within six months, I went into our field operations, our bottling community, to our archives. And in our archives, I found the first time I could point to water work was in 1917 with the Red Cross. And we were doing disaster relief back then, but also water infrastructure. 1934, we were the first company to have a public company to have a female on our corporate board of directors. It's Lady Letty Pate Whitehead Evans. It's 1934. Today we have 50 50 gender balance on our board. So you can see the journey of where it goes. 
1971 life cycle analysis. I sat there and I got lost in our archives and I just thought, this is remarkable. Actually, my job really is to get us focused, set objectives and targets that matter to the business and that we can, that are ambitious and achievable, but also at the same time, figure out how to measure, track, report out. And my goal back then, this is back in 2011, was of course, compensation drives behavior. So, so where are we today? So today we have clear objectives. We report out, we use ENY, our accounting firm to assure the data. We have metrics, if you look in our proxy, in compensation. So when I sat in the rooms in Davos, what occurred to me was this best practice sharing was going to be phenomenal because our biggest problem was people always say to us, gosh, if only I had known Coke was doing that work, we had no idea. You would think that we would be telling our story in a better way. But for some reason, we really you know, focused on let's do the work first, which is the right thing to do. So we say, be, do, say, let's be it, let's believe it, make it part of the purpose, let's do the work and then tell the story. Where some other companies, because they were naturally sort of in comms going into sustainability, they were telling their story while they were doing the work. And there's plenty of companies that I could hold up as best in class there, but I I won't talk about all of them, but we do work with um, our industry and, and different competitors. And I'd say that sitting around those tables, what I recognized is a lot of them were more interested in, so how do we actually get more focus and drive this into the business? And how did you convince your executive management and your board to put this into executive compensation? How did you get your accounting firm to assure the data? And so it was created a really great dialogue. Um, And what I'd say is that it's great to have this responsibility sitting whether you start as a chief sustainability officer first or a chief comms officer, because a lot of this work also is tied to public policy. And so I I know that a lot of chief communications officers have public policy. If you think of what governments, and this ties very nicely into Davos and why governments show up, if you think about public policy and what shapes society, it really is at the core, how we treat our natural resources, how we treat people, what are the benefits within those areas and how they intersect. And so what I recognized is that, um, you know, I don't know if Mutar Kent was just brilliant and then James Quincy is the incoming CEO who gave me the additional responsibilities kind of had this secret plan or if they just lucked into it. But what I would say is that I think that it was one of the huge benefits of the company having these disciplines connected because all of a sudden it really unlocked for us how to engage our employees around the work we were doing, how to communicate to the key stakeholders, including our investors. And at the same time, keep an open mind to listen to how to, how to better tell the story to consumers. I, I think this is a natural place to keep the work. I'd say some companies also have CMO, CCO, and CSO combined. That to me is utopia. I think that that is a really good place for companies to be. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, there were, there were a lot of sort of key takeaways and lessons in what you just said there. Um, you know, things about our role is to bring focus to all the many stories we could tell. It was clear you were not making stories up for the sake of sustainability. You were starting with what have we done, right? Instead of what do we want to say? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, compensation, driving behavior. One of the things that you, you kind of glossed over at the beginning, but I think is a really important lesson for people listening um, is when in the face of a big opportunity, 
the CEO of Coca-Cola comes to you and says, I want to handpick you for an opportunity. You ask, why me? Mm -hmm. I, I did. I think that's brilliant. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, so there's even a story within the story that I'll share that might make you laugh. So I thought I was being fired. There's, there's a few times in my career I thought I was being fired. That was one of them. So the person who I'd been working for in our North American division was always, you know, we had a great relationship, worked for him many years in my career. And he was a jokester, but there were days where he was serious. So I had, you know, I was one of the folks who helped to launch Coke Zero at the time. And we had put it in a campaign that wasn't quite working. So this is going to be really terrible as a marketer, but I really forgot to tell people, I was so in love with the brand and how it tastes. I forgot to tell you it had no, no sugar in it. So here we launched Coke Zero first time. I mean, you know, it was beautiful, attach it to the NCAA. We do some stuff. I won't say the campaign that never aired, but that's what I thought I was being fired for. So we go out, we film this beautiful campaign. All the data comes back because we always pre-test before we air. It's like, well, we don't actually know how this is different from regular Coke. And I was like, oh my gosh, we never once here said the core proposition. So I had to write this thing off and I had to go back and tell the time my current manager that this had happened. So I thought for sure, this is why Mutar Kent was calling me in. So I pulled all the research and the data, what I was going to do about it. I was ready to sort of fall on my sword. I show up with all this material and he comes out of his office and he looks at me and he said, what is all of that? And I said, well, um, I thought we were here to talk about Coke Zero. And he said, no. And Michelle, his assistant at the time, he said, can you take that from her? And it was there's a lesson within the lesson because I sat down. I said, Mitch Price said, you're not upset because I said, you know how much money I just wasted. I was very apologetic. And he said, you know, being he said, if I was worried about that, then you wouldn't be pushing enough and testing and trying. He said, it's a new brand. We didn't know what campaign was going to work. Yes. And he made fun of me. He said, you forgot a little detail in there. He said, but he said, you also learned a lot. Right. He said, so the next campaign will be better. And it was. And so I did have a chance to redeem myself there. But then he said, that's not what I want to talk about. And so we sat down and he said, I've noticed that through your marketing, you're always putting community programs in, national parks programs, Diet Coke, heart health. And he said, you tend to focus on society or community. And he said, I'm curious why you do that. And we got into this, you know, almost a 30 minute conversation just on that alone. And he said, well, I'd like to create the chief sustainability officer role. And I said, what, what is that? And Because I really hadn't heard the language that way before. If you said environmental or something, I would have gotten it. And he's, he explained it to me. And he said, well, what I'd like to do is continue to help make our business better, how we make our products, how we sell them, how we distribute them. And I want to make sure we're environmentally responsible while we're doing it and that people benefit. And he was used very simple language. And I said, okay, but why me? I don't know any of the technical aspects of this work. I'm a communicator. I'm your marketer. And he said, actually, he said, I do believe this is the future. And that's when he went into the conversation around, we have to move from just enterprise risk. He said, we're doing all of this. And he said, you'll learn what we're doing. He said, we need to move in terms of addressing what the consumer wants and how to help drive growth for the business by being a more responsible business. And that's when he said, you'll have time to learn. And he didn't give me much time to decide. He said, look, he goes, you know, go away and think about this for a day now. And he told me, he said, tell me what you want. Here's another lesson in this. So I'm full of stories on this one because I got so much out of this moment. I went back the next day. I had a list. I want to have a budget. I want to pick my own team. I want to have the year to learn. I went through all this stuff. 
he read it and he said, uh-huh. He said, what else? And I said, not, I don't know. Did I forget to ask for something? He said, yes. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. Cause I also was one of the founding members of the women's leadership council back in 2007. So he had picked 12 of us to work with him on women, advancing women into operations and leadership. So he said, think about your work on the women's leadership council. He said, what do women never do? He said, if you were a guy, you would tell me you want to be the CEO and you'd ask for double the salary. He said, you've asked for nothing for yourself. He said, so go back outside the door, write something down, come back in and let's discuss it. And I was blown away. And I went out, I talked to his assistant again. I said, Michelle, what should I ask for? She said, he clearly wants you to ask for more money or a different title. Go in and just put it out there. And I was like, I don't even know what to ask for. And she just shook her head. You know, she's like, look, she goes, just, just go in and just do it. So came back in a few minutes later, I sat down and I was really nervous. I was sweating. And I said, well, Mutari said, so, okay, there's one more thing. And what I'd like to do is talk about, I know you offered, you know, bumping my salary in this. And so I'd like to have you consider maybe a little more, you decide what's fair. And he, he kind of laughed for a minute. He smiled. He goes, okay, I get that was hard for you. He said, next time, put a number to it, but I'll accept that. And I'll come back and, and we'll do that. And so he came back with another offer letter and it was higher and it was higher than what I even expected, but it was fair market value the way he explained it to me. And he said, he said, I wanted you to understand that how you ask is actually an important lesson for how others watch you as a leader. And he said, and what do you knew? And you hear him telling the story to you right now. He said, B, you will always remember this. You'll tell others. He said, and they'll learn from that. And he said, I guarantee you'll either cause a problem for us because all the women are going to come in and ask for more every time. <laughs> he said, but that's okay. He said, at least now you're going to have people think about it. So I can tell you that that for me, I was very fond of, you know, Mr. Kenton still keep in touch. He added tremendous value to our company in terms of advancing women, but also these lessons in positioning the company to move towards this trajectory. And then, you know, James Quincy, who built onto it, because you never know when CEOs change. And when James called me up and asked me to take on an entirely different department on top of what I was already doing, it showed to me that he was driving even further to take the work that Mutra had done, and Mutra had a predecessor too, this guy Neville Isdell, who started our water work. I'm, I'm not telling you that whole story right now. But what I saw was James was taking what Mutra had done and, and even building it further into the business, into the operations. And I felt very lucky that I was the one, but I felt that story in itself is really important for the next generation of leaders, because I'm not sure that sometimes people know how to ask for what they want. Maybe sometimes they go in and ask just for themselves and they forget about the business. I wouldn't recommend that. But I also wouldn't recommend only going in and asking for the business and not thinking about yourself. I think that you owe it to the company to do both because it's important for everyone who's in that employee base to watch and to look to see what leaders do. I mean, this is just, that's a wonderful story. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I think both of those questions are really important. The why me question and then the kind of what's in it for me, you know, question. Um, and I do think that some of the examples that you gave and where your conversation with Mr. Kent went um, even helped lay the groundwork for what were the expectations of the role were and why he picked you and all this. And the other thing I would just say from the outside, perhaps, he's picking one of his most successful marketing leaders for a job that historically, you know, it doesn't necessarily always have teeth. That's and my right. 
somebody like you, he knew you'd be able to get things done. You already had the respect. You already had the relationships. You know, so I just, um, I really, it's a, it's a wonderful story and, and really kudos to you for making so much of it and for sharing it in such vivid detail here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I was fortunate to work with some great people. So I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say he was right. I had lots of experts around me. When I walked in, there was a guy named Jeff Seabright who taught me everything that he knew about, you know, the environment and the work we'd been doing, the archivist who took time with me, this guy, Phil Mooney, this other guy, Ted Ryan. So I'll say this, that what I learned too, is that this um, openness to help each other and, and to have that space and that time to learn, I think is also critically important as people change careers or take on new opportunities because the, you know, the why me I've learned to not always put that front and center. I think it's important to ask yourself, not just why me, but what value can I add? Why did this person think that I could make a difference here? And how will I actually be able to contribute to that? And so I've evolved even how I think about new assignments now, because now I tend to get lots of different assignments every now and then, So, um, which, is, which is great and exciting. And I love that. That's great. And... Um, I love your your triumvirate there of marketing, com, sustainability all working together, you know, with marketing helping sort of impact the product and the distribution and all of those kinds of things, in addition to then how you talk about it and what your commitments are and all of those important things. So um so B, I realize that we we are already at time here, and I know that you have a very busy schedule. So um I want to thank you for sharing so freely your experience and your insights. I think people are going to really enjoy hearing this. Thank you, Paul. Well, I'm not sure I got to everything you needed, but I hope that this gives you a little bit of what you need. And if you want some more time later on to chat again, it was really nice catching up with you. And I appreciate everything you're doing. All right. Thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And if you'd like to learn more about our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.